You know, God really had a sense of humor to have me preparing a working draft of a sermon on work right on the eve of a really long-awaited beach trip with my family. So here I was on a really sunny afternoon with a half-packed suitcase behind me, digging into a deep word study of the Hebrew words for work in Genesis. Maybe not your thrill of a good time, but it certainly is mine. Um, But all to get to the answer of this question, what is work? And I'll tell you what, I found the answer. I found it on the beach. But really, (laughs) I had some great conversations with my family on the beach about what is work. I got to talk a lot to my dad. He's a pilot. And I prompted the conversation to saying, "Um, yeah, on Sunday I'm preaching and I'm going to be talking about how God really cares about your work and what work is. And you should have seen my dad light up. It was a brand new thought for him that God really cares about the details of his job even more than he does. And so he went on and on and a little on about maximizing fuel efficiency and load time and all this stuff. But that prompt of that conversation meant that I got to hear from him how he feels like his job as a pilot contributes to the mission of FedEx. I never heard that before. And I got to hear a lot of perspectives, some different, on what work is from the rest of my family. And I've got two pilots, a divorce attorney, um, a bookkeeper, a store manager, an IT director, a stay-at-home mom, um, and a 90-year-old grandma. And we were all engaged in this question of what is work. And the Bible has a lot to say about work. Two weeks ago when we started this series, we said that we believe that God works. And if God works, the therefore that we said last week was what? God works. We work, right? This is a unique Christian worldview that we believe in a God who works and then who made us in his image. And so we work. Thus, God cares deeply about your work. He has actually commissioned you to do work in his world. So what exactly is work? Well, that's the fun Hebrew word studies that we get to get into today. We're going to see how scripture really um, makes it clear to us that it is fundamentally part of who we are as human beings that we work. It's in our identity. And so work is not just what you do to make money. Work is not just your job. So you are not off the hook from this conversation if you are retired, and you're not excluded from the conversation about work if you are out of work or disabled or too young to work. Work is fundamentally part of who we are. So I want to give us a working draft for a definition of work up front We're going to talk about the first half of that today, and then we'll get to the rest in the coming weeks. So our working draft of a definition for work is that work is doing something with what God gives you so that the world thrives and Jesus is glorified. Say that with me. Work is doing something with what God gives you so that the world thrives and Jesus is glorified. 
I don't want to cheat. We actually modified that definition from Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which we have been reading as a pastoral team. So we've modified his definition, but the principles come right out of the pages of this ancient book, God's Truth for Us. And so we're going to return to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's the first page of your Bible. To discover what God's command is for us as it regards what we're supposed to do with the something that he gives us. So this is where we will define the definition for work. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, listen for the commands here, be fruitful and increase in number. I'm going to use the word multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then skip down to verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word to us. Would we understand this is good news that belongs as a message that infiltrates our entire lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis one twenty eight tells us, first of all, that our command to work is just like the general command for all the rest of creation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. These are all in a command form, if you're a grammar person, but they're the outworking of the blessing of God. Look back at that. At verse 28, God blessed them, saying... God's blessing is his command. God's blessing is his command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. God started this process himself, but as his image bearers, we have the task of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. He started when he created Adam and Eve, and then he gave us this blessing We continue fulfilling the work of God in the command by his blessing of kids, filling the earth with the family of God. Larry and I don't have kids yet, but we still take this blessing of a command very seriously. We as a community are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth whenever we invest in relationships that fill the earth with God's family. So you do this as Sunday school teachers. You do this as Celebrate Recovery mentors. You do this when you invite offenders at Pretty Prison to be members of your extended family. And a lot of you have done that. So we as a community own this command to bear fruit by relationship. We multiply God's family and we fill the earth with people who know who God is. But God's commands for us don't just stop there. That command is a command he even gave to the animals in verse 22. God has a higher command for us as the creatures who bear his image in the world. And so the rest of verse 28 gives us the commands to subdue the earth and to rule over. These are stewardship commands. They're 
kingly words. When we see these words together in other parts of scripture, it's because they've invaded a territory and they're going to subdue the people and have dominion over the land. So these are kingly words about how we're supposed to relate to creation. Now, who's the king? Jesus, right? We are not the king. God is the king. And the fact is God could have reigned over his creation directly. We saw him do that really well, filling the earth all by himself. But God chose to impress his image upon us that we might subdue and have dominion over this brand new creation of his. God restrained himself, if you can believe that, from getting his creation all organized, from naming the animals. Those are things he gave us to do as his image bearers. It was his desire that we would be commissioned to rule the earth with him. So I'm not talking about kingly work where we sit on a throne in a purple velvet robe and just direct and tell everybody what to do. I'm talking about the messy, hands dirty, God in the garden work of subduing that he has called us to. This was the work that God was doing when he was in the dirt creating Adam. And he has called us to keep on with the work that he was already doing. Isn't that amazing? God has called us to do what he does. Cultivating the earth so that it is fruitful. So that it multiplies, so that we fill the earth, subdue it, organize it, and have dominion over it. Together, all those words are the work of stewardship. We don't use the word steward in daily life. And I was nervous to use it in the sermon because the church has gotten a bad rap for always assigning the word stewardship to what it means to give money to the church. So I'm going to do my best to redeem this word. Because I think it's a word that we need for this. Stewardship is about money, but it's not just about money. And a steward is a really unique person because the word steward means that you have the authority to rule over something or to direct something without having the ownership of it. So a steward is in a physical time and space doing what the owner would be doing with his property or his financial portfolio in the absence as the representative of the owner himself. So he's not going to even consider exploiting what the owner has given him. He's going to cultivate it and grow it just like the owner would himself. My dad is a good steward and he's particularly a good steward that you want to have in your rental property. We were at um, a rental house this past week and I caught my dad several times buying multiple dozens of light bulbs and replacing all the light bulbs in the house. He took a shovel and he literally raked the beach of all of the seaweed. He took the grill cover that was all rusted over, took it into the kitchen sink and reconditioned the grill. And that's just what I caught him doing. I'm sure that he was doing a lot more. That's the kind of steward that you want in your rental property, right? He took this rental property and looked at it like the owner and said, what would I do while I'm hanging out in this place? And that's our work as God's representatives. We look at creation. We look at our houses. We look at our jobs. We look at our bank accounts and we say, huh, what would Jesus do? He's the owner of all that I have. How would he steward this? And then we do what he would do. As his image bearers. So doing and having dominion is the work of taking what is yet undeveloped, 
or in need of repair and making it the best it could possibly be. Tim Keller points out that in this very word subdue, God is commissioning man to take what is still undeveloped and quote, unlock its deep untapped potential for cultivation through their work, unquote. God could have finished the work himself. He could have, but he desires our participation in his work in the world. Isn't that beautiful? And his work is the kingly work of subduing the earth and having dominion over it. So what has God given you that you could organize better? That has unlocked potential that you could unearth? Dave Ramsey of Financial Peace University loves the slogan, you got to tell your money where to go. And so we create budgets and we organize them to be as profitable and as generous as we can be. I know one of you has a business organizing closets. And if you need her name after the service, just come and talk to me. She's really good at it. Teachers, you rework concepts in different ways so that they can hit different students in different ways. So they can cultivate and so they can run with the concepts. My dad, the pilot, maximizes mechanical efficiency on a daily basis. God has given you something in the physical world, and he cares about what you do with it. So how do you steward what God has given you? Stewardship really involves everything in your life, and so we are stewards of time as well. God is just as concerned about how we steward time as how we steward our our stuff. And I really struggle with this one, but I'm going to go there anyway. So doing your time is a lot like stewarding your money. you got to tell it where to go. And that requires a little bit of margin. And it requires not being able to say yes to everything. And I know a lot of you with kids struggle with this in particular. I know a number of you who are probably going to think I'm calling you out by name, but I'm not. (laughs) I know a number of you who really struggle with what it means to steward your children's time. You think they need to be in one social activity, one athletic activity, and one musical activity at a minimum. It's your role as parents to steward your children's time. They can't do it for themselves. And if you don't subdue their schedules for them, then you are training them up and cultivating within them a workaholism and a performance attitude that is going to grow up and be ugly as they're adults. You model for them in the way that you steward your own time what it means to cultivate the time that God has given you. So may I just pastorally encourage you, even as I preach to myself, take dominion over the time that God has given you. Don't let your schedule get all cluttered up and overgrown with so many commitments that there isn't anything eternal being birthed out of it all. What you cultivate in the lives of your families now will reap an eternal harvest. I want to skip down now to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. When we narrow in on uh, the work of stewarding the earth, God gives us a, a couple more fun Hebrew words for work. Genesis 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the work of work is literally work. <laughs> to work and to take care of. 
If you did a quick word search, you would see that these two words only show up together one other time in scripture. And it's when we're in the tabernacle. Because the work of the priest was to work and to take care of God's holy place, their, their worship space. This is the language of service and guardianship. We're not only called to steward as kings, but to serve as priests. This is what we're called to be in relationship to what God gives us. We're called to be its king and its priest. Have you ever thought of yourself as a king or a priest? Did any of you read uh, Rachel Toon's Reflections this past week? Her title would be like, Queen of the Afternoon Drink at the Altar of the Bar Cart. (laughs) I know it sounds kind of ridiculous to mix these religious words with your everyday life. But I really believe that this is what God is calling you to be over what he has given you. A king and a priest. But I tell you what, the work of the priest, the work of service, is not an easy job. My first job out of college was at a bed and breakfast. I had a couple years to kind of burn as Larry finished his schooling. So I thought it'd be a great temporary job. And my family had really dreamed of having a bed and breakfast together when my dad retires. And we were just reminiscing last week about all the jobs that we had designated out to everyone. Like this is a legit vision that we thought five years from now we would be pulling together as a family. So I thought, well, I'll go get some B&B experience. So my title, I thought it was just so dignified, innkeeper, queen of the innkeeping. And my first task on the job, my first hour was to clean the bathroom toilets. And then my regular rhythm for my nine-hour shift began with watering all the plants outside, coming inside, making breakfast, serving breakfast, helping clean the rooms, then coming down, organizing a wedding or a business meeting that was going to happen soon, giving the historic tours, and then playing concierge, and then locking up and going home. How many of you want to quit that job? I wanted to quit that job. But my, the woman who was discipling me at the time told me that I was not allowed to quit until I could learn to make a bed to the glory of God. I did not learn that at that job. But gosh, I wish that I had. The job was pure service. And honestly, I thought I was above it. I did not see that if I saw this job as Jesus saw my job, then he would have plunged that third story toilet so well, it probably never would have clogged again. And we would all have been better for it. But Jesus wouldn't have done it for the sake of his own personal recognition the way that I wanted to. He would have done it because the inn would thrive with unclogged toilets. And God would be glorified in the excellence of that work. And it would have been an act of love for the people who stay there. I'm getting ahead of myself to the why of why we work. We'll get there. But the point is, I hadn't learned that God's intention from the beginning in the perfect world was to give us work, good work, that is the work of service. Being a good worker and caretaker of creation means serving the world and serving the people of the world. And Genesis 2.15 tells us that work, the intention for work, was always service. So how can you better serve the people in your life? God has called you to serve and to take care of his creation as your work. So whether the need that you're dealing with on a daily basis is hunger or health... 
or cleanliness or organization or prayer? What human need could you serve by the way that you work? These might be easier questions to answer if we were still in that idyllic, perfect world of the Garden of Eden. But God has called us to these religious tasks as priest and king in a broken world. So what does that look like? Pastor Mark reminded us that these Genesis commands to steward and to serve are all pre-fall commands to work. That means that they came before sin entered the world. And before sin entered the world, what was work? It was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it, to work it, to keep it. And what happened when we sinned? Well, frustration flooded that work scene. And now we're dealing with thorns and thistles, envy and greed, lack of clarity and failure. This is now our work reality. Our work became cursed. Genesis 3.15 talks about the curse of our work. So God came to break the curse. And he did. He broke it. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he showed us what perfect work looks like. He perfectly was fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth when he made disciples who made disciples who made disciples to such a fruitful degree that I stand here as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ because of their multiplication efforts. Jesus perfectly stewarded the earth when he subdued the demons when he rearranged the society so that the outcast was included. He perfectly worked and served when he washed feet and he fed the hungry. Jesus is the perfect priest and the perfect king. And the ultimate work of the Son of God was alluded to in that Genesis 3.15. Even when the curse was pronounced, so too was the promise that there would be someone who would come and defeat the enemy forever. And Jesus fulfilled and, that, and completed that work when he was dying on the cross and he cried out, dying for our sin. It is finished. The curse is broken. And he proved it three days later when he rose from the dead, declaring his victory over sin and death forever. Declared that the curse is no more. Declared, too, that the work, the toilsomeness of our work, that curse is broken as well. And just as we long for the day when death will be no more and we will all be raised to be with Christ, so, too, do we cry out and long for the day when work will no longer be toilsome, when it won't be sweaty and frustrating and full of failure when we will be healed from disabilities so that we can do the work that we want to do, when there is work to do. These are the cries of our heart. Work is part of eternity, and in eternity, our work will no longer be cursed. And yet the command, just like we still live and die, the command is still to work, to sweat, and to toil over it. It's our very design One of the ways that we image God is to work, to steward like kings, to serve as priests, just like Jesus did the work. Now, you could still do the work without Jesus living and dying. I asked that question. 
Is, is there any distinction to what work is because Jesus has lived and died and risen again? Do you know what this looks like when you work without Jesus? You do. You see it every day. Some of you go to work without Jesus. A lot of us work with people who don't believe that there was a curse for the toilsomeness of work and that it has been broken. What does it look like then when we say, no thanks on all that Jesus stuff. Keep that in the church. Don't need it on Monday. Well, without Jesus, still is sweaty and toilsome. But without Jesus, we live without this promise from Jesus that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Without Jesus, you don't know the nearness of God in your work. Without Jesus raising from the dead, there's no eternity. Your work has no eternal value. It's like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity and a chasing after the wind. And you work as hard as you can and you're going to retire and you're going to leave it off to someone else and you hope they're wise and do good things with it. But Ecclesiastes says they might be a fool. Problem is God has set eternity in our hearts, he says. So if you go to work without the promise of Jesus, then your work is just a chasing after the wind. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that he promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. Praise be to God that when we believe in Jesus, we can live into his promise that says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Praise be to God that he has set eternity in your hearts. And the good news of God is good news for your work. He has given you by his grace the responsibility of being his representative wherever he has you. So do something. Do something with what God has given you. Multiply it. Be fruitful with it. Make it profitable. Make your business profitable. Subdue the schedules of your family. Tell your money where to go. Tell your time where to go. You got projects to do? Organize them. You got mechanics to work out? Make them efficient. What has he put in your life? Who has he put in your life? Serve them. Care for them. Jesus rose from the dead. And we will too. And the world that we will live in forever is a lot like this physical world. If you need the hope of that, go home and read Revelation 21 and 22 and see the beauty of this perfect world that God is putting back together. And you know what? Work is going to be part of our eternal life. So start practicing. And Jesus is going to be with you forever. And so invite Jesus to be with you in your daily work. He cares about your work. Do something with what God has given you so that the world thrives And Jesus is glorified.